Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is Will Mavity's interview with the writer and director for Akira, Jonas Carpignano. <laughs> So, uh, Jonas, where am I speaking to you from? Uh, Southern Italy, Palermo. Okay, okay. So, what time is it there, by the way? Late? Good question. Uh, uh, 6.20. Okay, good. So, we're not, this isn't one of those times where I'm keeping you up at like 2 a.m. your time. No, 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 we're good. <laughs> I'm okay. lucid. Oh, you're lucid. Well, it would be a little more fun if you were like sleep deprived and deranged, but I'll work with what we have. So, one of the things I really like about this film is I feel like there is something of um, a mafia movie tradition of beginning with a big party that introduces the characters before anything, before the shit hits the fan, basically. I was curious about, you know, the first 30 minutes of this film, really that birthday party. So tell me a little bit about the choice to open the film with that and what you kind of wanted to establish in those first 30 minutes before the car bomb goes off? So, you know, (laughs) I obviously, you know, I've seen the films that you're talking about, you know what I mean? Um, The Godfather films, especially, um, sorry, with this epic. It's a wedding and then uh, graduate, what is it? The the graduation second one? Anyway. Yeah. Um, So I'm definitely aware that there is a tradition of this in these sort of films. Um, But I didn't, I definitely didn't start off thinking that I wanted to sort of make a film to sort of fall in line with this cinematic tradition. I remember, you know, I've been living in this town for for 10 years, or more than 10 years. And the first time that I went to a birthday party like this, I went to it because I was invited. Like I didn't mm-hmm. go because I was gonna do research for a film one day, you know what I mean? I was like a friend of mine, um, invited me to his niece's 18th birthday party. You know, I knew her, I knew her family. And they were like, 
you should come to this. And it happened to be, well, it didn't happen to be, but it was in the exact place that the film, that the scene we shot was, that exact same place. Um, and everything that happened in the scene happened in that 18th birthday party. You know, the, the crazy dance off, the karaoke, um, the big dinner, the toasts, all of that. So when I first experienced this, I experienced this just as someone who's trying to have fun. You know what I mean? And to me, what was memorable about that, aside from the fact that I had the time in my life, but what was memorable about that experience to me was that I understood the family better after spending this night with them. You know, seeing mm -hmm. a family just amongst themselves in sort of like this sort of like social vacuum where it's only family sort of allows people to let their guard down. And I was able to map out better what the relationships were like. So, you know, I remember seeing how much her father cared about her in that dance contest. You know what I mean? Yeah. I remember how emotional they both got at that last dance. So when it became time to make this movie, you know, I thought to myself, all right, before getting into elements of the mafia, before getting into the things that the viewer will have a preconceived notion of, I want us to just get to know the family first yeah. and foremost. And so for me, the best way to do that was to do it in a way that I had done it while living mm. in this town through a party. So that was the ultimate goal of this scene. You know, I mean, the goal of the scene was sort of to get let the viewer get an unfiltered, uninhibited view of what this family is like and what their actual interactions are like. And to sort of have important points to hit for the plot later on, so to say, but really just to let it be free and let the relationship speak for themselves. So that was the ultimate intention. The fact that it sort of falls into a larger tradition and a larger tradition of mafia films is just sort of like gravy, so to say. Yeah. It's just sort of like the cherry on the cake. So uh, obviously one of the, the most interesting parts of this film, as you mentioned, is that this is a real family. And so these interactions are very authentic. How did you choose the, the non-actor family that you were going to showcase here? And um, how much did you kind of let them improv in general as you gave them the parameters of, okay, this is a movie about a girl coming in terms of the fact that her dad's in the mafia? So um, I met, Swami, Swami, the actress who plays Chiara, is the center point of the decision, essentially. Mm -hmm. So I met her while working on another film, the previous film with Chambara. She came to an audition when she was nine years old. And a couple weeks before that audition, I had submitted the treatment for development funding for Chiara. So she came to this audition for a film that, you know, she was essentially auditioning for to be an extra. Mm -hmm. But I had the film in my mind because I just submitted the treatment and I met her and I thought to myself, okay. It's going to be this girl. Obviously, she's nine years old. She was coming in to be an extra. I didn't tell her, like, hey, you're not in this film, but I have a film for you in the future. I didn't want to get her hopes up because, again, I was working on one film. I wasn't concentrating on the other one yet. And I didn't even know if it was going to eventually happen. But I knew that if I was going to be able to make a Kiara one day, it would be her. And so with that in light, you know, I should back up and say the reason why she came to this little audition is because I was already friends with her cousin who plays her cousin, the one who takes her to the mountains. And I was friends with her aunt, who's the one who she has that scene in the car where she's like, um, are we in trouble? And she's like, you're not in trouble. So I knew them already and they decided to bring her because I knew them. So over the next years, I sort of grew up. I sort of like, you know, sort of the, the, I grew, she grew up and I sort of got to watch her grow up. And over the years, I sort of tailored Chiara to Swami. Mm. So the more I saw of her life, the more I wanted it to, be more of her life, so to say. So there came a decision to actually use her family, use her sisters. In the first draft of the screenplay, of the first treatment, Chiara didn't have two sisters. 
But because Swami did, and because I was able to see those interactions and sort of base the family dynamic on those interactions, I wrote them into the screenplay. So basically, Swami was a starting off point, and then getting to know her family, I sort of tailored the whole thing to them. In terms of the improvisation, you know, some moments are based on moments I've seen. So mm -hmm. the fight that her sister had, that she has with her sister in the amphitheater, where she confronts her about knowing about her father being in the mafia, is based on a fight I actually saw them have. Now, they weren't fighting about the fact that their father was in the mafia because their father isn't in the mafia, actually. <laughs> right. It was a similar fight that they were able to channel and I was able to repurpose for that scene. So certain things were sort of based on things that I'd seen in the past that I wrote into the script and then we did them again years later. Some things were sort of improv, so to say, meaning because in back to the dinner, the, the, the big birthday party scene, I know her cousin Enzo is a bit of a clown, right? So in the script I wrote, Enzo gives a toast, he's the life of the party. Mm -hmm. But then I let him actually just be the life of the party. I didn't tell mm -hmm. him what to do. I didn't say, say this joke. I didn't say, get up and do this. I sort of made sure that what camera was always going to be trained to him on him and sort of just set him loose. So yeah. because, of, I, because I knew him, I knew what he was going to do, but I didn't tell him what to do in the scene. I sort of let him be himself. So there was space for him to improvise based on what I already knew that they would do. You know, So they improvised, but I knew that they would do that specific thing. So I wrote it into the script. I know that's confusing, but so there's space for them to be themselves, but they were the person that was written to the script because I wrote them into the script. That's very cool. I feel like this is uh, incredibly unique that you have films where you're able to do this much research constantly into building them in. So I have not seen your first two films, but tell me a little bit about how this... Um, fits into your triptych right you this is an unofficial trilogy you know so it's it's triptych is certainly the right word like in my mind like you know it's not necessarily a trilogy where one narrative arc starts in the beginning and then continues through three films and i think thank you for saying triptych because that's really the key to this and it's also the key to sort of how this thing evolved like i didn't move to Joya Tauro with the idea of making three films. You know what I mean? I went there to make the first film, fell in love with the town, wanted to stay there. And as a result, I made the other films. So whereas mm. the first film, I went there to sort of do research to make a film. The next two films weren't like that. Like I don't go to Joya Tauro. It's not like a laboratory where I do research. Like I live there and because I live here, I continued to make films here, right? Yeah. So it didn't unfold in terms of taking one narrative arc and following it's the end and folded as like, because I'm spending so much time here and because I'm getting to know different facets of life, I sort of want to tell these other facets of life and sort of give a more complete picture of what the social fabric is like in this town. So that's why Triptych to me is the greatest, was the best word because it's not about one story that begins and then ends after three films. It's just about another group that that gets braided into the texture and the, te the fabric of this town. So mm. because I stayed in this town, because I've been living here, I got to know different elements and different facets of it. And they sort of weave together to hopefully give a more um, um, general picture, global picture of what life is like in this region in this moment. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, 
and the monsters from The Misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, I think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. One thing I'm curious about, is there actually a law and program that basically separates kids from their parents if there is a culture of mafiadom? And have you have you seen yeah. that? Yeah, in, so in that? it's actually, it's, it's, it's technically not a law, it's a provision because laws are national and provisions can be based on different regions. And this is the only region where this sort of thing is allowed. So mm-hmm. sort of like backing up and not taking into a really deep um, history of the mafia generally in Italy, but there are different branches of the mafia, the different um, groups, different organized crime groups. They all get umbrellaed as mafia, but the one in Calabria is called the Andrangheta, and it's different from every other form of organized crime because it's the only one where to become part of a family, you need to have a blood tie. You need mm. to be related to the person. So there's no good fellas where like, if you're cool and you do a good job, you get into the family. You're right. either a blood relative or you're out. So because of that, historically, there have been less turncoats in this version of the mafia than any other one, right? No one, people are less willing to actually flip on their family. Mm-hmm. So because of that, it's really been in, incredibly hard to infiltrate. And because of that, it's grown to be what's arguably the most powerful organized crime unit in the world right now. Um, so in order to sort of break this, the judges have sort of created this provision where if someone of a suspected mafia family or someone who's been condemned or arrested for something in the past, if one of their children at a young age does any kind of misdemeanor, they can take the kid out of that family to try and break this cycle. That's the idea. Now, it's a very controversial program. To the credit of the people who created the program, you know, they say themselves, like, it's never an easy thing to do. Like it's never an easy decision to make because obviously intellectually the law makes sense when you're thinking about it from the halls of the court system and like, you know, the the judicial buildings. But when you're actually getting involved in a family, there's more to it than just 
breaking up a criminal family, you're breaking up an actual family. And right. the repercussions that that has in terms of the social stigma on that family are epic. They're normal. They're enormous. And so I remember seeing this happen to one. So they don't give you information about this, essentially witness protection. So the actual numbers are impossible to really know. Mm-hmm. But this happened to a kid in the town that I live. And I remember the craziness around it, not just yeah. about the fact that he was taken away and the fact that his father was given life in prison, um, but just what it felt for him to have these eyes on him in this way, in the way they'd never been before. Mm-hmm. Meaning, yes, sure, people weren't um, ignorant to what his father did, but the, the ousting of it in that way certainly changed his standing in the community and the way he saw himself. So for me, that felt like a really different way of looking at the way um, criminal families and organized crime works in a small town. So I wanted to sort of get into that and sort of get into this law um, to sort of show that there's more to it than just the label of mafia. You know, there's actually yeah. people behind it and lives behind it, which get touched and which get changed in a way that you don't read about in the newspaper. You know, you uh, you talk about, there's this great line in there, I thought, where he's, the father's explained to Kiara, he's saying, bosses launder the money, we do the work. Um, I, I wanted to go a little bit deeper into that. Uh, tell me a little bit more about what he's getting at with the structure. And uh, I guess what's that saying generally about class in this part of Italy, too? Yeah, I mean, I mean, that that to me is one of the keys in terms of, like, you know, it's it's most people that you find that get involved or get arrested for this kind of work are a lot of people didn't make it through high school. You know, what I mean, a lot of people don't want to leave the region and they find themselves without having any other options, so mm-hmm. to say. Right. So one thing that's really important that I've learned increasingly by living in the sound, it's like it's really hard to judge someone if you don't know the options they have at their disposal. Right. So it's like hard to get for me to condemn someone who ends up dealing drugs when you don't know what they've gone through in the past. I think that's sort of what he's getting at. You know, he's sort of getting at the fact that like, um, I don't know, this isn't my dream job. You know, this isn't what I would want to be doing necessarily, but I don't really know if I had any other way of moving forward. And that's sort of what he's getting at, which is sort of like the people who get caught and the people who are part of this part of the job are the blue collar workers of the mafia. You know, they're not the ones who who have the billions of dollars, the people living package to package, as you can sort of see from the way they're living, right? Whereas the the real power, the real powerful people involved in this are the people who own the shipping companies, the people who are getting the things in, the people getting it out. It's a much, there's much, there's bigger forces at play that are harder to trace and touch as opposed to people who are actually touching the drugs. I think, you know, the wire is a wonderful example that sort of also illustrates in American culture where it's like the people who have their hands on the drugs are generally the people who don't matter as much. Right, right. You know what I mean? And like that's yeah. that's sort of what he's getting at. As far as the don't judge thing, there's this other scene I think is really powerful where um, one of the characters is talking about there's a painter and he's like he was the best portrait artist in the world because he paints people as they are. Um, I mean, I, I think obviously it's pretty self-explanatory what you're going for with that anecdote but i wanted to hear you talk a little bit more about that because it's a really good moment yeah you know to me th- there's two things at play there um like the the one thing that people often talk about when they when they sort of ask me why i live in joy and people were sort of like look down on joy there's always this concept of like oh but there's no culture there you know what i mean like so as if like people can't be intelligent because 
there aren't world-class museums here for some reason. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? As if like people are looked down upon because there's not as much culture. And I always find that to be problematic. So that scene for me is really, it's not just about, you know, him talking about the painter, but it's about the emotional intelligence at display and being able to read that moment. Meaning if I'm in a car with a fugitive in the back (laughs) and my cousin, who's kind of a fugitive as well, I'm not going to be that calm and I'm not going to be able to talk her through into calmness to getting through there. He's able to do that. And it may not be the kind of intelligence that someone has to be able to cite and talk about the best painters in the world, but there's an intelligence at display there that grows out of the circumstances that the person's also living in. For me, that's sort of the key to the scene. It's less even about, it's less about what he's saying and what he's citing as opposed to his ability to read and manage that situation. You know what I mean? Like you don't need to have a PhD in art history to be incredibly intelligent. And I think he shows that by being able to get himself and his family out of that incredibly tense circumstance. You have this running motif in the film. Um, You know, the film starts with her on the treadmill and culminates with her uh, sprinting on a track. Tell me a little bit about that whole recurring motif throughout the film. Yeah, I mean, you know, to me, to me, that's just sort of, it's sort of emblematic of what it's like to feel trapped. Meaning like the second you're running on a treadmill, it's like, yes, you're going through the motions, you're doing what you need to be doing, but you're not actually going anywhere. You know what I mean? I feel like that, that's, that's sort of that moment in life where you're going through the motions, but still lots of things are being decided for you in your familial context, in your social context. I think growing up is sort of doing the things that you've learned while being in a familial context and a social context, but going where you want to with them. You know what I mean? Sort of, mm-hmm. That's sort of like the meaning behind that, essentially. It's like the girl is always has the ability to think for herself, do things for herself, but the, the circumstances change, meaning like, yeah. yes, that girl, it's not like she has this epic change. What she understands about her world changes, but she still is who she is. And, 16, 17 years old, you know, you're, you're on your way to knowing who you are. You're on your way to knowing who you are. You're not there yet, but you're on your way. So right. to say, and showing like the context changes and who you are as a person is going to change based on the context. So whether yeah. you're on a track or on a treadmill, your mobility, given your effort, changes. Well, I think we're about out of time, but uh, do you know what you're going to do next? I mean, are you going to keep focusing on this town mm-hmm. or do you want to go to... Uh a new environment for the next story you want to tell? I mean, I know, I mean, I'm definitely not done with this town, obviously. I haven't found what the next facet is going to be, but I'm not done with this town. In the meantime, though, you know, I sort of figure out how I want to work. So even if I go to another town, another place, this process of sort of mixing my experience living in a place with a story that's, you know, scripted and structured is sort of what I want to do. You know what I mean? That's sort of like my cinematic compass. I want to keep working in this way because I find that the best thing is not just it's wonderful to be able to work not only focus on the result meaning whether the film goes well or not in the world outside at the end of this I have friends and relationships that I care about that I treasure that are forever going to be part of my life you know what I mean like if I can continue to work like that I consider myself incredibly lucky yeah well, thank you so much for your time. It's uh, it's a great thank film, you. and I'm glad everyone gets to see it. So, appreciate Thank you it. very much, man. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Will Mavity's interview with the writer and director for Akiara. 
Jonas Carpignano here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Akiara is now currently playing in limited release in New York and Los Angeles from Neon. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.